Pius XIII was a great poem. But life evolves in spite of us. I'm the new Welcome to Papal Bull Resurrection, the world's only podcast about the new Pope, the sequel series to The Young Pope. I'm your co-host, Merrick Kay, and I'm joined, as always, by Fanbyte Chief Religious Correspondent. And Theological Expert. And Theological Expert, Eric Thurm. And uh, this week, we are also joined by uh, special guest, Virgil Texas, host of Chapo Trap House, Gamer, theologian, maybe we'll see. Uh, what else? Oh, best-selling author. Best-selling author, documentary, documentarian, maker, documentarian, yeah, yeah. star of stage and screen. <laughs> so uh, many credits. Huge bimbo. Huge bimbo. Um, and <clears throat> we are talking about episode two of the New Pope, titled Episode Two. Very creative name. And I do want to point out that. Uh, Virgil did not see episode one mm. and has of seen this. of this and has seen a few episodes of the young Pope. So we kind of just like dragged him on and yeah, I would, I would love to know sort of like how coherent was the explanation that we gave of the, the first season? It was very, it was very coherent because okay. I had seen, I think one episode that was earlier in the season uh, of the young Pope that was representative enough for me to get a handle on Jude's Law's character. Jude Law's character. So your your explanation scanned okay, great. Uh, though it got the very end of it got a little tough, you know. Yeah. Uh, and as well, your recap of the first episode uh, that was a lot to process. A lot happens in that first yeah. episode, and then we talked about that last week. Actually, there's a whole they, other papacy. They cram a lot in, yeah. So I, I do have this one question: in the first episode, in, in the okay, between Jude Law going into a coma mm-hmm. and the events of this episode, how much time passes? About ten months, and Maybe in that time, less. there's an entire new papacy that which lasts about two weeks. I Maybe think. less. Maybe honestly. one week. Okay. It's like very, four days. Very brief. Yeah. So it's, you know, as, as they, they reference on the, uh, on this episode. So it's, this is about the year of the three popes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. When, three popes. Um, I believe, and you know, I'm not a theologian, but I believe Pius died. And then there was, I want to say John Paul the first. Nah, I'm screwing this one up. Uh, there's another guy who was there. For just a few months, and he was supposed to be a reformer, and then he died, and then I think then it was John Paul II. I believe that is actually John Paul I because they reference him having died, having yeah. died under mysterious circumstances. And right, it was you know, and because you know he he was a guy who was there to shake things up in the aftermath of uh, Vatican II, and yeah, that's like also going on in the backdrop of the years of lead in Italy, when uh, a bunch of people were just straight up being assassinated uh, by the uh, mafia, by the CIA, by the Italian government, you know, and rumored by the Vatican. So not a huge stretch to say that a fucking Pope was in the, you know, among the body count. 
What year was the year of the three popes? I believe 79. Wow. It'd be 78. Yeah. Thereabouts. Wow. I didn't realize there was historical precedent for that. I guess that's the end. That really is the heat that they're bringing into this uh, this calendar year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although, yeah. we... Yeah, that's, I mean, without having seen that first episode, I would guess that this is, that's exactly what they're alluding to. We, we, do, we do not have to uh, jump this far ahead in the episode, but I will say the existent, the canonical existence of Brexit in this universe <laughs> raises some questions about exactly what the time frame is. It's very weird hearing the word Brexit in a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. It would be like hearing Milhouse say it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wept. When he heard of Brexit. <laughs> That's maybe, should that be uh, uh, our segue into talking about the this titanic new character to whom we've been introduced? Oh my God. Right. John, Sir John Brannix. Played by John Malkovich. Played by John Malkovich. Um, what what were, what were your guys, uh, first impressions of, of Sir John? I love that your first impression of him isn't, he's not even present, that mm-hmm. scene. Like, they arrive expecting to talk to him because it's, like, a big deal. They're like, we want to talk to him about becoming Pope. And his butler is like, I'm sorry, but he's gone to bed and he never changes his habits. And, like, they're like, um, it's serious. And he's like, it's impossible. I'm very sorry. I was thrown off because, I mean, I guess I didn't, you know, see the prior episode, which might have introduced him. I was thrown off by the fact that he was just uh, uh, a... Uh, a brooding arist- English aristocrat. <laughs> yeah. Because sure. I thought he would be, you know, a cardinal, like all the other cardinals. He wears the cardinal yeah. stuff and he does cardinal business. I didn't realize he was just some guy who hangs out in his castle. Yeah, he and also make is a- it to the conclave. Yeah. They're just, yeah, he, he... Well, he <laughs> is the candidate. He's basically, he's like the only candidate, according to Voyello, because... He is a proponent of the middle way, yeah. which is between dogmatism and, you know, empathy, I guess. He's a reformer with results. Yeah. So he's a moderate. Right. He is a moderate. He's, he's, this, he's the Mike listen, Bloomberg. He's, he's an electable, he's an electable pope. Yeah, right. Yeah. I just like, we've been talking to people going into conclave. Everyone thinks that Brannox can win. No one is really feeling this like weird Voyello guy. We just like have to all unify behind Brannox. Oh, yeah, that's one thing you don't know, is that in the first episode, the reason that they elected uh, this guy who, Francis II, who was killed very quickly, is that Voyello wanted to be Pope. But it was basically split between him and a guy who looks exactly Exactly. like him. uh, And neither one of them could break through. And so Voyello did this thing of like, okay, let's position this guy as like the, you know, more gentle choice. They should uh, consider instant runoff voting for the conclaves. <laughs> uh-huh. Ranked choice. Yeah, yeah. That, that would produce, uh, you know, consensus results. There is some system they have, right? Because it gets, I think basically the way it works is like the bar you have to clear gets lower every uh, round of yeah. voting. Does well, it? Really? I yeah. think so. Not, yeah. I don't know if it's every round. I think I think we can like do, do some research on this for uh, later, but that, that, yeah, it like eventually it gets lower. Which I, I believe is because there have been some historical, very, very long deadlocks. Uh, there are apparently, and we'll we'll talk about him later. Uh, but the b- papacy of Celestine V uh, ended a deadlock of two years 
of voting, which is just like imagine like sitting around for two years and you're just like voting every like two months and everyone else is just like, fuck, like, we can't pick a guy. Like, is it possible that we don't actually know what system they use or whether they uh, after, uh, you know, multiple ballots will will lower the bar? We don't know. Yeah. They, they just there's a there's some very elliptical dialogue about it in episode one. And they go through like how many rounds, like 30 or 40 yeah, it's like or a lot of rounds. It's like a ridiculous number. But um, yeah, Boyel has basically decided this is our guy. Um, but the problem is that he is like this weird, reclusive, depressive figure. He, he, I hate that I have this thought. He is described repeatedly throughout the episode as being depressive. He never leaves his house, has like a very complicated and unpleasant relationship with his parents. Mm-hmm is basically cosplaying as Brendan Urie for most of the episode and is like very into outfit changes, just like very much like a relatable millennial Pope. And I do not, <laughs> I, I, I do not know if that was the intention, but he very much, I'm like, I too fall asleep at like 10 30, my man, like, and I'm sad all the time, like respect. And our generation is in the midst of the worst opiate addiction the world has ever known. Well, we, we, Gotta get to that later. It's like pretty clear that like he has this box that's like next to his bed that he yeah. needs to sleep. It is pretty clear he has like some kind of drug thing going on. Uh, I'm gonna say heroin. Calling it now. I yeah. I would guess. I would guess. So he's like he's like Walter Pater's hero in the Renaissance. <laughs> he is a mm-hmm. a decadent, reclusive aristocrat. Uh, who loves, uh, who just spends all his time with his fancy dog and his uh, priceless artwork, uh, secluding himself from bourgeois society. Mm-hmm. He he does, he is part of society in some ways, as, as we learn. Um, but he does, like, you get the sense that he just hates talking to people. Like he tells the butler that after the first day that he spends hanging out with the Cardinals, it was the first day in years he was not able to uh, speak with or commune with God. And he, he has this very interesting and bizarre sort of like relationship to his faith where he, he, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's like he, he, He's very confident in his faith, but also is confident that his faith requires that he not interact with people. Um, and just, yeah, every people he has described repeatedly as being like a little porcelain doll. And I, I do sort of get that vibe. Yeah, he's just a, an ooh, soft boy. And like a lot of people. He wants to at me. And like a lot of people in this show, he's uh, very fond of saying uh, cryptic things. Mm-hmm. Mm. You have to. It's a prerequisite to yeah, be in a Sorrentino production. Yeah, giving uh, many monologues. Speaking of cryptic images, I would love if we we can talk a little bit more about about John, but I would love to go back to the beginning of the episode. Oh dear God! Yeah, because I like what I'm. First of all, I'm curious what you made of that uh, sort of image. Which so the 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 opening if you if you've not watched the episode the episode opens with Sophia uh, Cecile de France the that uh, marketing director of the Vatican sitting on a bench where all of the Naruto monks from last week's episode are like staring at her and she starts unbuttoning her blouse and like crossing and crisscrossing her legs and just looking at them very seductively 
uh, and they are really just sort of like leering. And then she very, very slowly lifts up a middle finger as we cut into uh, Sophie Tucker in the opening credits of the show. Uh I don't know. Just, yeah, very powerful moment. Well, I'm not going to pretend to be a Sorrento expert, but what I've noticed from the few things that I've seen by him, including uh, one or two episodes of the prior season of this show, is the, the, what he depicts is masculine environments, right? And the women in his productions always stand out so strongly because of, I mean, I would say his obsession with female sexuality and the female orgasm in a, I mean, almost a, uh, almost a spiritual sense because there's supernatural things that happen on this program. And obviously the emphasis on people's different conceptions of God and uh, uh, transcendence. And it seems that he positions women as a, I don't know, an, an alternate means of transcendence mm. of, 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 of energy that, that mm -hmm. comes from, that's involuntary, you know, of, of, of uh, ecstasy. And the female characters on the show, I remember there was um, Ludovine Sanye's character uh, who makes a brief appearance in this mm -hmm. one. Uh, and she was uh, she was originally a nun in the first season, right? She so this this is Esther. Uh, she is the wife of a member of the Swiss Guard uh, who teaches the children who live in the Vatican uh, or like babysits them in some capacity. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then there, there's one very notable, uh, extremely uh, sterile sex scene where she and her, her husband are trying to conceive. And then uh, Jude Law, Lenny Bellardo, Pius Thirteenth does a miracle and she, she, uh, she has a baby named Pius. So obviously one of the running themes of the show is there's, a, there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And the in-group is uh, uh, members of the cloth, old men, right? Uh, yet they need support staff they mm -hmm. need people such as that uh, or or uh, 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 a uh, 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 an ambassador or uh, a press secretary or something like that some uh, uh, people who, who civilians who help them interface with the outside world in some fashion and I think he just plays up that that contrast between you know female sexuality and the all male you know the the what is supposed to be uh, uh, chaste and sexless. You know uh, uh, members of the church mm -hmm. uh, who are nevertheless they are supposed to be under the influence of you know a a, a greater you know a power of feeling. Mm -hmm. He is very horny. That's true. Well, this episode definitely is the. The horniest episode. Yeah, I think, I think you you have a list written down in your notes of the the ways in which this episode was right. Is that is that correct? I mean, there's like a few Cecile de France scenes for sure. Uh, there's that first one, and then there's the scene with her husband, which is like very weird. Kai sucks. Um, he's he really sucks. Uh, yeah, there's that scene. There's another scene with her, um, which is just baffling. 
It's just very confusing with the cell phone. Can can you just describe a little bit more for for the the non viewers? She's, she's talking to her husband. She's like when when they've arrived at John Brannock's estate, and um, she's talking to her husband. She's like FaceTiming with him, and uh, then she basically requests that he perform oral sex on her through the telephone, um, which. Not really a thing. Um, maybe like on Reddit people do that, but like very strange, very odd scene. And she just kind of shoves the phone. Yeah, that's. I mean, that. How else are you gonna do it, right? I, and it felt. It felt honestly. It felt a little bit like I was like looking at a Facebook meme that was like you know like a drawing of like instead of like a man, it's like a cell phone. Uh-huh. You know yeah. I mean? Like a sort of like millennials right. looking like millennials. they're basically <laughs> fucking their phones we, now. We don't even look at porn on our computers anymore. <laughs> we look at it on our phones. Uh, tube. Yeah, I know these names better than I know the names of the Pope. Um to be fair, there are like three different ones though, so but yeah, no, I think those points are well made, Virgil, because definitely I mean by design because this is a show about the catholic church pretty much all of the women characters are um bridges to like the like world of the material um their interfaces between the vatican and the outside world but at the same time they are also these like kind of weirdly like ineffable characters like Cecile de France's character in wait her last name is de France right I'm not just like her last name yeah yeah okay yeah Mm -hmm. um but means of France oh interesting thank you yeah um but yeah Sophia two two years French in high school (laughs) (laughs) uh Sophia's character is is really interesting in this episode and there's a scene too where it's clear that like from the first time that Brannick sees her that he's like very like like taken and in that scene where he is dressed just like fully as doctor who (laughs) when he's hanging out with his i mean okay he's wearing like a bow tie and like a cape and a hat like he just looks like bowler hat yeah he looks like the next doctor who and um i know it's the doctor like don't at me but he's talking to his butler and uh uh he's like wow what an astonishing woman and his butler's like, please excuse my obscenity, but she is the honker. It's like honk honk, like <laughs> like Yamza, wolf eyes. That's, um, that's, it would be better if that's what he said, though. It would be great, but he just says, like, she is a beauty. And it, oh, wow, I'm so sorry. Your mouth is so filthy, my, my man. I know, like scrub it out with soap. But like, yeah, she is a, an odd focus in this episode of a lot of events. And... Um, she is, yeah, also the only woman in the squad. And yes. uh, when the squad converges on Brannox's estate. Oh, man. Should we should we go, th- like, because that, that really, we get that opening, but, like, almost the entire episode, with the exception of, like, one or two scenes, is essentially devoted to this mission uh, of this squad from the Vatican attempting to convince Brannox to become the Pope. Um, so, you do, I mean, do we want to, like, go through the individual people in the squad and, like... I mean, it's like the Cardinal Squad, right? So it's Boyello, it's uh, Gutierrez, Gutierrez, Asante, Asante, and it's that other guy, Aguirre. Aguirre. And 
What's uh, it? Wait, Sophia. what's the name? Desante? Asante. Yeah. So Asante, yeah. Asante, uh, if you'll, is the one who um, was the head of the congregation for the clergy in the last season and who the Pope fires immediately after discovering that he's gay. And the entire joke in this uh, episode is that just everyone knows he's like real horny. He's very horny for John Malkovich. Did, did anybody else pick up on that? Oh. That like. No, yeah. Because in the I first, no, I didn't. In the first scene on the train, he's like, "We spent long hours together at the European Synod," and he just like is very like he, he has he, a thirty-six page letter from yes. Him. He he has this very like he he's very thirsty for Branix, uh, and I do think that part of it, as Branix points out, is that he wants to be given like a good job in the the Branix papacy. Um, but I also think that part of it is just that he's like a little horned. And I, I think that's nice for him. And that also, that maybe is why he feels lonely when they're in the house. Oh, should we talk? Is it is it too early to talk about that scene? No, let's talk about it. We're there. So. Uh, yeah, this is a sad... And speaking of female sexuality, I feel like a thing that I find really interesting about this scene is that it's like the most tender or like one of the most tender uh, like near connections that we get on the show mm-hmm. in which that first night where Sophia is like jerking off with her phone for some reason... Uh, Asante takes off his shirt. He like very deliberately spritzes himself with uh, some form of cologne. And then he goes and just kind of gingerly knocks on the door. And and we see who opens the door. and It's Gutierrez. Um, And it's really sad. Just like both of the actors, I think, do a really good job of just communicating the, the weight of this like lifetime that has been warped by a lot of different forms of like weird sexual hangups and like the fact that they are denied like this form of connection and it is like feels it's very very sad in a way that i think could have been played as a joke and uh you don't have this context but in the young pope uh gutierrez is sent to new york to investigate a, a cardinal or bishop a car- uh, archbishop I archbishop believe. for like child abuse basically and in that time he uh, connects with like this guy named Freddie there, um, so he like has this ongoing relationship with him, and that's part of why I don't view the way he uses female sexuality as an uh, like a like a threat, like mm-hmm. a, like an imposition or something, or or uh, 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 a a. Uh, uh, like a lure of of you know depraved secular society, right? Uh, I think it's a bit more complex than that, yeah. Because all of the characters are so sexually complex and screwed up, and you know, as we know, to be a you know a, a member of the church is necessarily to reject your desires Mm -hmm. and that most people would say that that is necessarily unhealthy uh and in any event it means that your desires are never uh um they they never get more sophisticated you never you never learn mm-hmm. more about them uh it's it's not just a matter of you are not fulfilling your desires it's a matter of almost denying that they exist period and trying to replace that with a fundamentally different drive 
uh, uh, the the drive to be closer to God or be a servant of God, uh, to to be in a a state of grace, right? Just from Eros, Thanatos, and the Logos, right, right, and yet we know, you know, and that's the running theme of the show that well. Also, these characters failed to do that. They failed to actually get rid of their desires. We know that they're not just sitting around in a conclave, you know, writing fucking theology. Uh, no, they're greedy and horny. We did learn that a lot about them in conclave. So, it, for for kind of, there's a scene in the first episode uh, where we hear what their their each of the cardinals is praying for uh, during conclave, and several of them are horny in some really unpleasant ways. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and and, and Mer- like I don't know. The first time we we watched this episode, I, I remember feeling quite sad about it, and like it really is this rare moment of vulnerability where of you know Asante putting himself out there, and and he says, "I felt lonely," and Gutierrez says, "If I let you come in, you'll feel lonelier later." We'll feel lonely yeah. later. Yeah. Um- and yeah, also like Lenny is showing up throughout all these scenes. Oh yeah, he's like, ghost. Yeah, he's, he's a ghost, ghost now. Um, but yeah, he appears to Gutierrez after that and says, "You made the right decision. Pleasure leads to pain," and so kind of just reinforcing um, all of this stuff about like abnegation and denial. And um, but at the same time, like earnestly believing that and like believing that, um, not in like the way that Lenny delivers that line, and like I think thinking about Lenny's character, that isn't just like a dogmatic line for him, but more of like a true belief of like to seek out like pleasure leads pain almost in like a, like a Buddhist way. And, and it's like, he's like protecting himself too. There just is a lot of interesting stuff in these like parallel scenes. I think that like interacts with desire. Although I do, I don't know. I think my favorite thing about the ways that the squad spends that first evening is when, uh, even though we don't see him in any of the scenes, Aguirre asks uh, one of the servants uh, if there are ghosts in Brannox's house, and she says yes. And then he just goes, ah! He's very afraid. He's very, yeah. very scared of the ghosts. You'd think there'd be ghosts in the Vatican, but I guess maybe all of like, the they get exercised. power keeps them away. Yeah. They, yeah, they get exercised. You can't like stick around there. Yeah. Um... Yeah, there's it's a very very sad scene, uh, but then then we get oh, and one of the other things that Lenny does, that Ghost Lenny does, uh, is he moves the box that presumably has uh, Branix's drugs in them, and we we sort of learn, I think canonically that this is like Lenny's actual ghost and not just sort of like a metaphorical projection. Uh, I mean, yeah, people say that they felt his presence, and also he's not just like appearing there and saying things but like moving things around and like he he, he canonically moves the box yeah oh he does light a fire that's the first scene that he appears in, in yeah. this episode is he appears to Boyello and who is like cowering in the cold under a blanket because he can't get the fire to start and he just like just beaming he's just like has this huge smile on his face and lights a match and just throws it in that's that's I, like really one of my favorite things about this show consistently has been that it is unwilling to be very textually literal about the existence of miracles and like it's not coy with them at all Mm -hmm. um but it does raise a lot of like theological questions of like what is happening right now like what in what capacity is he manifesting from this coma he's a saint saints can do that 
Is that is that canon? Yeah, yeah. Is that, in, is that in the stats? It's oh wow, in, it's <laughs> in the Catholic canon. No, oh god, it's oh, in the I hate this. We have to. I can't. We're not cutting. This. I walked. Uh, uh, you, did, you did. Walk, you did. <laughs> Uh, but it, yeah, as, and I, I appreciate that a lot. We really like, and it's, it's especially sad for Gutierrez because he says on the train when they're on the way to Brannix's house, he, he says like, we've forgotten about Pius the 13th. Like, what would he do? We f- we're not connecting with him. And even, even Brannix acknowledges, you know, he says, uh, as, as you may, may recall from our introduction music, uh, Pius the 13th was a great Pope. Uh, and he, you know, he says that he wept when he learned of his condition, um, and and it just it still feels like we have this big sort of Jude Law shaped hole uh, in the middle of the show. But then they yeah they they like get to know him and and I don't know we we get that like first scene with him and and Voyello and I don't know the scene in which he's found like basically says like know him I am him when Voyello asks if he knows where Branix is, which is again very confusing to me because I thought. Well, if you're a cardinal, you've got to do cardinal stuff. Right. You can't just hang out in, like, really gorgeous Italian suits brooding all the time. Turns out you can. Yeah. That's canon also. Yeah. You can and he Um, does. And uh, I love that in that scene, he moves from one chaise to another. Yeah. He gets up from that chaise and then walks across the hall to lay down in another. In order room. to make a slightly different brooding <laughs> pose. Yes, yeah, he's just fully lounging too, and uh, that did- one scene where he just says like, "How do you find me?" and it's just like fully like splayed out. Which I have to say, this has to be an incredibly fun show to act in. Oh, must be because the way that. The the way that the show is done, the way that it's, it's portrayed, uh, you can't overact in the show. Right. And it never feels like they're overacting. Certainly John Malkovich can't. Right. It gets, I mean, it, it, it goes to the point of being, like, funny, of breaking through that barrier where, okay, that's ridiculous. But it's still firmly ensconced in the world of the show that you have a, just a foppish guy like that. Mm-hmm. And we're all taking it seriously. It's very purple. And he does, yeah. yeah, he is like... Purple is a good way to put it. He, he like... There's like a weird flirtatious energy to that scene, I think. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, there's well, that energy to every scene that he's in. He's described as very seductive. And he, I mean, the way he talks with his like ridiculous accent and like <laughs> the languor with which he like carries himself... It's, yeah, I mean, even, yeah, that scene, um, that first scene with Boyello, uh, he's like, oh, we must, dreadfully, we must have a conversation. And, and Boyello's like, well, they haven't invented another way of getting to know someone. And he's like, nonsense, what about love at first sight, followed by passionate lovemaking? So he's like, yeah, he's just... And, Vo- and Vo- to which Boyello says, that would make me uncomfortable. Right, yeah. Absolute king. Very good in this episode. Yeah, and he and he just like he he's like trying really hard to make himself elliptical, which I think is really interesting because uh, the way that Lenny is introduced in the first season is also very much designed to like make him feel elliptical and to feel sort of like a cipher. But it feels like Brannix is a cipher in a very different way, and that he he he's actively trying to like run circles around you where it feels like he's kind of like dangling a little cat toy and like watching people chase it 
I don't know. Does that, does that like, that's like very much the vibe I get from like all their dinner scenes and the scenes where he sort of is like leading them through the paces of, of talking to him about the papacy. Yeah. I mean, Lenny's whole thing was mystery. Right. And like that even comes up in this episode when Esther is giving that interview to that reporter about the miracle of how she had her kid which is like a great scene too, because like the way that it's shot mm-hmm. and framed is like, she's giving this heartfelt story and uh, then it just smash cuts to like her getting paid after and haggling about it mm-hmm. and being told that like her story isn't worth that much now because she's told it to like every TV station and every newspaper. But yeah, Lenny's whole thing was like, Oh, our power is mystery. Like that's why that's where the church gets strength from is like not being knowable in the way that the secular world is. And uh, Branix is, is similar, but is there's like a different energy to it. I think it's clear that Sir John has a game that we don't know what it is yet. And the snuff box is a hint to it uh, because as well, much like uh, your sexual desires or your, your divine desires, uh, Drugs can just drive your action, right? Uh, that's another huge human motivator. Uh, I don't know if it's that necessarily. They The show wants us to believe that John's motivation is grief mm-hmm. over this childhood incident that it's not terribly clear no. what that was. That is, that is uh, I think... Even if his motivation is not theological mystery, it feels very much like a lot of his motivation is biological mystery. Because I mean, because, mystery. I mean, so much of the show seems to be presenting pious people and then saying, "Okay, let's find out what they really think, why they're full of shit." And of course, the the Jude Law, the young Pope, uh, as well, based on your explanation, anyway, uh, no, he was a true believer. Like that, that he, it's interesting because he also, he, he's very, very dogmatic, but he also is kind of an atheist. Like he, he tells uh, the priest who actually becomes Francis II in the first episode that he doesn't believe in God. And Tommaso is like horrified. Uh, and, and Lenny responds by saying that he's joking, but it's clear that he's not actually joking. And we sort of see him wrestle with the fact that he seems to really be trying to force himself to believe in God, but also is in the middle of this like long, dark night of the soul in which, you know, he refuses to believe in his own like saintliness, uh, which feels very different from the way that the death of Sir John's brother has, has affected his, um, his life. And there is sort of a very, a very interesting garment that he wears in that first scene. I don't know, Mary, do you remember the t-shirt that he's wearing? In that scene? Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, the t-shirt that says that uh, I definitely didn't kill my brother. It's just raising <laughs> a lot of questions that are already answered by the shirt. Yeah. Uh, so is Sir John impious? Is that a put-on when he says, you know, I, uh, I spoke to God tonight, but I said lies? Right. Well, he says, I don't think he says he told lies to God. I think that he says he was lying when he, like, or I don't know, maybe he was lying to God. Uh, but he he does feel very like unsettled by this interact like these new people because so much of his routine is just that he 
as he tells them, he spends all of his life in one wing of this giant castle, and his elderly parents, who have cut him out of all the family photos, spend their life in the other wing of the castle, sitting outside of his brother's grave for, like, ten hours a day. And that apparently has been the routine of their lives for, like, thirty years. Uh, and it's like, yeah, I would be very unsettled, too, so if that was my piety life. piety just another routine of his? It definitely seems like it, because he also tells Voyello earlier that he's, like, cultivated a lot of habits to try to have less of an imagination, because if he feels like it brings him closer to God, it very much seems for him, like, saintly or or piety and, and feeling the closest to God is a result of removal and of, like, feeling fragile and delicate and not being willing to leave this very small comfort zone that, of course, like, the papacy is, is I, I would imagine, very outside your comfort zone. Probably. Not for me. No. No. Right. I would be fine. So if they came to convince you... Well, they wouldn't have to convince me because I would have to do... Well, I... I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I technically could say no, but uh, I, I don't know if I would be able to. That, that sort of is an, a, a, another interesting, I don't know, thing. Like, before we started recording, we were talking about... Uh, why it feels weird in some ways that they're doing this errand because uh, in theory they could just vote and he would win and they, and they want him to agree to do it before the first ballot. Uh, and I, I, I did some research after uh, talking to future guest of the show, Lana Massey, uh, and learned about the, the reason that that's the case the reason that papal abdication exists. Can we, can I, can I talk about Celestine V now? Do we, do Please. we, okay. It's just, so, so my understanding, my like very limited understanding, also welcome back to possibly our only uh, iteration of the Pope of the Week segment that we'll be doing this season. Uh, beloved recurring segment, gone too soon. I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. we, you'll be missed. Um, do you have a theme song for the Pope of the Week? Segment? We, we should have. No, we did, that was how we ended every uh, episode last season by just kind of picking a historical pope and talking about their papacy. Um, but this this papacy, there's not that much to talk about because it only lasted for five months. Uh, Celestine V was a hermit who lived a life of like very sort of intense with withholding, which is also related to what we've been talking about and I think is very similar to, to Sir John. Uh, and he, he sent a letter to the conclave after two years and was like, you guys have to pick a new pope. And apparently they were like, all right, that guy. And they elected him, and then they kidnapped him, basically kidnapped him and made him become the Pope. Wow. Yeah, he didn't want to do it. Like, I just find that so... Like, imagine being kidnapped, and then you're like, fuck, like, I gotta be the Pope now. So after that, they made it that, okay, before we make someone Pope, we're gonna verify. No, well, so he he just sort of gave himself an escape clause. Like, he he was Pope for five months, and then he wrote, or gave a speech, or, like, wrote a, a, a document or something. A saying. Yeah, so he created a papal bull. He was on an episode of our podcast in which he we sort of were talking to him about doctrine. And he said, you know, actually, I've decided popes can resign now. Also, by the way, I resigned. <laughs> which is like, that's incredible. Yeah, it's like oh, very, right. very good. So, right, right. But so then the but that's still embarrassing to the to the conclave. Oh, right. yeah. So you were saying after that, the conclave decided, OK, before we pick someone, we're going to make sure they want to be. Called. Well, so I don't know. I don't know if that's like normal procedure, right? But it does seem like, especially in a case with someone where you don't know if they actually want to do it, there's like a touchy history of electing people who don't want to do right. it, right? Especially when it seems that the papacy is is in a period of, of deep instability, as it is in this show. I do want to bring up one other thing. Um, you know, when we're talking about 
Sir John's earnestness, right? Uh, you know, there is something about the fact he lives in a gigantic mansion that mm-hmm. seems very unchristian that he's also obviously conscious of from his uh, discussion of a homeless man when they ask him if he wants to be the Pope. And so he's, you know, he understands his affluence, but he doesn't do anything about it. He didn't, you know, he didn't uh, decide to, uh, you know, forgo the the trappings of materialism and become a a mendicant or something like that. No, he just broods on it. And he he doesn't even, (laughs) they ask him and he doesn't even know how big the estate is. Right, yeah. He just is so removed from it. He he's very childish in that way. Yeah, what the fuck, Sir John? He is. He, he, he should he be a class like, traitor. He is basically a child. Like he has kind of this like arrested development, where uh, his parents kind of like cut him out of their life. And does, did they say how old he was when twenty five? Twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. And did they? Um... Why did he join the church? Why did he so become a priest? They don't say, but the... Because that's also unusual, because he's there. Well, he's the heir to all of this, yes. right? That's more something that, if you're the fourth born, you yeah. do. Yeah, I think that they... they um, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think this is too big of a. So breaking the the sort of fourth wall here. Like, I think they. He was at least interested in Catholicism, and he he and he and his brother were both interested in it. As we sort of will learn a little bit in in flashbacks. Um. So I think that the family maybe is just like a weird random family of like British Catholic nobility. Uh, which doesn't make no, sense because they got rid of all those. Right, right, exactly. He so it's like it's like how fucking, uh, got right, 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 right. So it's like it's like <laughs> there are some still. I there think. must be right. There's some Catholics, but they're not nobility. What if there was? I don't a, think there are any Catholic could, uh, could, aristocrats left in England. Could there be? Oh, could she, there be? Uh, uh, could there be a Catholic noble who like was a Protestant noble who converted, but like recently, right? So they would have been like, shit, like, we can't actually, like, kill them because it's, like, you know, it's the, the 60s. Well, I don't, I'm not saying they'll kill you, but um, I don't think that's okay. been the case. Yet another way that the new Pope plays with the time-space continuum. We don't know when this is happening in relation to Brexit. Well, the thing is, we also don't know if he was a, uh, oh, his family's, the things I'm saying, it's, it's, I would think it's impossible that his family's yeah. ancestrally Catholic, but if he had a traumatic experience that caused him to, one, convert to Catholicism and two, yeah, become a, 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 give, you know, give up a, a worldly life and embrace a spiritual lifestyle, that's very possible. Uh, and that's also goes back to the question of how sincere he is, because I would say that if your motivation is trauma or escapism or something like that, then I don't think you're getting any closer to God. I think mm. you're just still acting out your drives, which uh, might be the... Uh, same drive is like uh, I I'm, I'm horny for this lady and her uh, uh, cleavage. 
<laughs> that is that is a common uh, or thematic I, concern of the te- this television well, right. show. Right, I, I only bring it up. So I think I think him and his brother were both just like good philosophers, and like probably went to like a Catholic school or something, and like were like talented theologians or something. But there are Catholic noble families in England. They're Who? recusant families. What's that mean? It means that they... Where are uh, they? What are their addresses? They refuse. We're getting, we're getting <laughs> we're, rid of we're them. We're going to kill them. We are, report, we're we're fucking are, get rid of we them. are reporting them to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, the Queen's pissed already. Like, <laughs> um, yes. Also, apparently, some uh, well-off families converted to Catholicism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I stand... All right. All right. You were right. I stand corrected. There are still some Papist scum living in England. Right. <laughs> Uh, and you know, shame on shame on the queen for not you know dealing with these traitors. Um, so there is a uh, the the Baron Acton, I believe, is a that's my favorite YouTube album. Baron Acton. <laughs> uh, who know? Yeah, no, they they exist. We exist. We, they're valid. We're valid. If you're a British Catholic noble, you are valid. We're just going to take a break, and we will be right back. Well, we were asking whether or not Batman was Christian, but that's kind of probably beyond the purview of this podcast. Although. 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 If Batman were super Christian, honestly, he would be very similar to John Malkovich in this television show. <laughs> right? Like, he just sort of is, like, a weird, like, depressed, like, like Christian billionaire, who, but, like, secretly there's a back. Whoa. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, there's also a Batcave in this show. We have not talked about Oh, yet. we haven't talked about the Batcave yet. Which, um, I mean, it's also, like, the Vatican bunker. Yes. Which these three real creeps just meet in to talk about their schemes. Yeah. Uh, Sophia's husband, Thomas. Fucking sucks. Just really what a fucking thumb worst. of a person. Absolute worst. Just like an anthropomorphic thumb. He, yeah. So basically the thing that we didn't mention about him is um, he's like, he's got plans for this papacy. He's got all kinds of deals that he needs to talk about with the Pope. And, uh, he meets up with uh, a cardinal. Yes, he meets up with a cardinal who at first I thought was uh, Luigi uh, Voyello's new second in command, but is not. He's a different guy. He has what I think I can only describe as the like haircut equivalent to a busted like white van. 100%, yeah. You know, it's like a little bit, fl- it like falls over like the top of his forehead a little bit in a way where like if he had more hair and was a 16 year old, it would be like kind of a hot topic-y haircut, but it just is not. It's horrible. Uh, that guy uh, and the finance and economy minister of Italy. And they're all hanging out in this weird bunker that like seems to not be like a community space, but just like for this one guy's like private bat cave. Just like full of booze and like, uh, it is shaped and, like and a bunker, brooding, like, brooding spots. Yeah, it's like yeah. clearly underground. There are no windows, but it's like covered in like baroque detailing, and it's like just wow. Okay. Well, so also one other curious thing about the bunker, um, I, I don't know if you if you think it's too early for us to reveal this to the audience, but the the bunker is also where we're we're recording right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, so we go here to podcast and then we pray to God to help us stop podcasting. Yes. Uh, if you have noticed anything off about the sound quality this season, it's because we've moved to recording full time in the bunker. Um, and we'll, we'll sort of keep everybody posted with that and uh, what kind of, you know, whether we're able to achieve forgiveness. Uh, but ju- just wanted to let everybody know that because this is going to be an important space going forward. Yeah, they suck. The room that I was most fascinated is uh, that white room with the, the freezes. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, I think there was running water in there. It was almost like a grotto. Yeah. The scene where John Malkovich is dressed like the architect from the Matrix. Yes. Or like Colonel Sanders. He's, he has a white, a white suit. Which, you know, I'd have a white suit too if I had a bunch of servants. A white suit with like... Basically no lapels and like this really weird, maybe small bow tie thing going on. It it looks like he is about to do a like very bizarre like lounge music performance. Mm. But sort of like a fancy, you know what I mean? Like it looks like he's about to play at like the nightclub from being John Malkovich when he like goes into his own head. Mm-hmm. So once uh, fancy, one step up from Richard Cheese. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sir Richard Cheese. Sir Richard Cheese. <laughs> but that scene is pivotal because that's like the last scene we get of them trying to convince him to become the Pope. And um, Gutierrez gives this big speech about what is love. Um, and I bet you thought I was going to do a Hathaway thing there. I did think you were gonna. I really was wait. I was waiting for it. I'm better than that, though. No, I, you're not. I, well, no, we've. But <laughs> you, you we've tried grown. to. You tried to introduce Rick Rolling to the podcast we've, last week. We've grown since season one, and season one me would do that. Season two me is too pious for that. Uh, but yeah, so he he gives this whole talk about like love and talks about how it's like an abstract concept and basically says that like if God didn't exist, we would need to invent him. Um, and then John Brannix gives a talk about what love is and uh, gives this kind of like cynical talk about the church. Yeah. Uh, about how like, you know, um, this vagrant is dying on the street and uh, his friends and the government and everyone are all like, oh, well, I'll help you. I'll give you my wine. I'll do this. And then the church says nothing. The church is thinking of him. Which is the closest he sounds to Lenny, I think, this whole episode. Because mm-hmm. that feels like something Lenny would have said in the first season. Like, like about, like, saying nothing and about, like, sort of, like, feeling the weight, the spiritual weight of the world, but huh. not engaging with it. Like, that feels very sort of early Pius Thirteen. And they ask Sir John, um, so what's your decision? And he says, well, I'll go to sleep and I'll ask my heart. But what he really means is he'll, he's going to ask his nose. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wow. Oh, wow. No. Seriously, Millennial Pope. Um, yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, man. I assure you millennials did not invent uh, drug dependence. No, but, you know. Well, we, perfect, we perfected that. it. Yeah. <laughs> Pope Zans. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's that's the real that's what like the the What real, if John Malkovich's character just had like a bunch of face tattoos? <laughs> oh, too soon. Too soon for little peep jokes. Uh, well, he's not the only. No, that's true. Lil Zan's still alive. 
Is that a real rapper? Did I see yes. that? Okay. Yes. Uh, and no, I, I thought you were making a, a Takashi joke. That's what I thought you were doing. A Takashi joke? Yeah. Or not. Wait. Never mind. Well, we can. We can we'll move take this on. Yeah, we'll, we'll move off of figure this. this out off the air. Um, yeah. Yeah. But his whole thing, this whole episode is he's just been like very evasive and very like. God, I think my favorite scene in this episode is. Um, my favorite dialogue is when he's talking to Voyelle for the first time. And he, when you're introduced to him, he just seems completely insufferable. Like he's just like. I weep for the endless imperfections of the world. And uh, at one point, Boyello says, like, it must be very difficult being you. And he's clearly just, like, dunking on him. And he's just like, it is. Well, I think they're both dunking on each other in that scene. Mm -hmm. Like, both of them, I think, clearly are, like, like a little bit condescending, like, wary and condescending and respectful yeah, of the other one. I mean, because they're, they're doing Brannick the dance. gets in that good bit about, like, do you know how many times I've read your book? Once. And he's like, because if I read it more than once, I would, like, turn evil. I would go bad. Yeah. Well, the other thing I love about the architect scene is just how gorgeous the composition is, mm. the shots. The framing, yeah. Yeah, they're, and they're all, which is one of many, like, there's, like, a shot in that scene where we sort of are seeing them all from the side, and Branix is, like, crossing his legs, like, sitting on the fountain, and the uh, the rest of the squad is, like, perfectly positioned in a tableau which is one of several that we get in this episode it's one of those things where if this show were one half step worse the whole illusion would be shattered i'd be like this is cheesy as fuck Mm -hmm. but the fact that it achieves the vibe throughout makes me think yeah 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 it would be very easy i think to be like wow this blow and it just because there are so many I don't know. It really reminded me of uh, that shot that, like, I, I don't know how well known the shot is from the, I believe, third season finale of Mad Men, in which they're, like, starting a new agency and whatever, and they're, like, standing in, in front of the window, and it has this very, like, movie poster feel to it, you know? Like, you, like, see the poster, and it's, like, starring Cardinal Asante, like, Cardinal <laughs> Voyello in, like, you know... uh Opiates eight. One thing I like is how distinct every old man looks. Oh, the faces <sighs> in the show are fucking so on point. Who who had the best face this week? The delectable. But are they electable? Is John Brannick's electable? I I'm dying between. I and I, I don't I didn't catch all their names, but the one with the very prominent mole. Secretary of State and uh, the one who looks and sounds like Jabba the Hutt. Oh, um, Uh, Aguirre. Aguirre. Yeah. Who's afraid of ghosts? Yeah. And he has uh, a really good face. I honestly, I mean, just the way he was sitting in the train carriage made me think, oh, that's Jabba the Hutt. The way he was talking in the same kind of languid and mean way. Uh, and that for that scene to come right after the two with the breathing masks, mm-hmm. uh, with the with the oxygen Star Wars is like with the oxygen mask. I mean, that's you can't have a scene where the only sound is the the breathing through an oxygen mask, mm-hmm. uh, and that not be elusive to Darth Vader. You can't. That doesn't exist. Pope I'm sorry. Vader. I'm sorry, it doesn't exist. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Pope is the spiritual father of the church, and Darth Vader 
It's the, you know, Vader, father. He's. I mean, that's that's the. Re- I mean, if you think about it, the real tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise was that he never accepted <laughs> Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. My God. You know, Darth Plagueis the Wise was also assassinated. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. So coming full circle right here. It's true. By his spiritual son, uh, Palpatine. Wow. That is how Trinities work. I mean, you know, the prequels are just about, like, uh, the church falling apart, so. It it really is. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's why they're good. Next time on uh, A Theology of Star Wars. Don't even joke, because there's, like, six podcasts that are about (laughs) that. I mean, there's, like, probably a whole podcast about that line in... uh, empire i think where uh darth vader says like like i've altered the deal pray i don't alter it any further like who are they praying to is there god in star wars and as well we can't forget that sorrento is european and all european people are weirdos who have very strange Uh, cultural affectations that is true such as for instance uh i don't know uh believing that the star wars prequels are the greatest films ever made uh, and then never having seen any other Star Wars movie, including A New Hope. I would, you know, that kind of thing is something I would expect a uh, transgressive Italian director to say. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I've only seen Star Wars episodes one and three. They're the greatest <laughs> films I've ever seen. They're the only thing that has inspired my work. No, I will not be taking questions. <laughs> Just, I'm just imagining Sorrentino just like looking very, very seriously at an interview and asked about his biggest creative influence and saying, Jar Jar. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, I've been saying Sorrento this whole time. You have to bleep that out. That's fine. No, you gotta, fine. you gotta bleep it out. Bleep out people every are gonna, time you People are Sorrento. gonna think I'm an asshole. <laughs> uh, but, okay, so I think, um, I don't know if Erica has, but I think you might be the only one of us who's seen uh has some of his movies have you seen yes i've seen a couple of them yeah because you were talking about before we started recording Uh, il divo Divo. yeah how does that compare to like to what's happening here it's obviously very comparable uh but the the one difference is il divo uh to my knowledge is it's more like a docudrama in certain ways it's obviously there's there's a level of abstraction uh which is in the way that you know this series that we're watching is it it is very abstract isn't it it's very mannerly and uh yet that was a film that was it was about you know real people and real events that happened Mm -hmm. and it was it played up the conspiratorial nature of it and uh i mean the 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 plotting this was about the um uh this was about an event in the uh years of lead when the uh prime minister was abducted by a communist group uh yet it is believed in many quarters today that that was a false flag attack mm-hmm. uh about a, you know it, it was about uh, i believe set in the mid 80s and as well it it, it the uh, one commonality is uh his obsession with powerful men mm-hmm. and uh by by powerful men i mean you know the the prime minister and like political leaders business leaders and higher-ups 
in the church. Mm-hmm. And you see that as well here. He doesn't just focus on them in like a, like a Michael Moore way, mm-hmm. though. He, I don't know, he, he, he perceives the aesthetics of powerful men. Right. And that's why I, I mention how distinct the Cardinals look. Because you watch any other TV show. Right. Uh, that's, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like a prestige TV show or like a, uh, like a big serious show about like wealthy, powerful people. They all kind of look the same, right? Like you watch Succession. How about that? That's a good example. Uh, everyone is ugly in the same way in Succession. If you squint, it's actually hard to tell anyone apart except by age there. But here, everyone is so distinct and everyone wears who they are on their face, whether it's mm. a big glaring mole on their face or a uh, uh, big uh, Jabba the Hutt neck flaps. Uh, and as well, it, you know, what? Uh, another commonality is his focus on the the... the the costuming, the trappings of mm-hmm. power, uh, and and as well his his acute awareness of the symbolic power of these things, mm-hmm. of the cardinal's robes, of the ruby red slippers, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, you know, that's what struck me. But obviously, El Devo is you know it's it's a different movie because it's about real things, but the. Uh, satirical themes, I mean, to the degree that you want to call this or that satire, uh, and I think to some degree they are satires because they are well, I mean, for one, they're funny Mm -hmm. at certain points and is well because they are exaggerated representations of reality. I mean, I I guess that's a rough definition of satire. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the satiric valence is, is very similar. Yeah, and God, you haven't seen it, but <laughs> you talking about the his interest in like the aesthetics of power. Just anyone who's seen the Young Pope will recall that scene where um, Lenny gets dressed. He has a dress-up montage to LMFAO's "Sexy and I Know It." Um, the best 90 seconds of TV they aired in incredible. the 2010s. But I also, think, like, Lenny... Um, Lenny as a character is also very acutely aware of and concerned with the aesthetics of power because one of the things that he does in his papacy is he buys back the papal tiara and he insists on appearing. When he ever appears before the cardinals, he is, like, weighed down by all of the like jewelry and gold that he's wearing. Though he also does not appear in public. And I do think there's an interesting, there's well, this it's sort- because he's aware of the power. Right. Of, exactly. Like, appearance. Yeah, right. Th- there's this very, like there's a scene in episode two of the young Pope where he tells Sophia that he doesn't want to be on merchandise because of Banksy. Um, <laughs> that's not a joke. That's no, what yeah, happens in the scene. He that, does yeah. talk about Banksy. Uh, and and I think that's a really interesting contrast to to this episode in which there sort of is like a, a scene that has a lot of fixation on Branix's image when Sophia takes those photos of him as a teen. As I don't know punk, how, yeah. Yeah, how, you, how you guys felt about that that scene where she's just like taking these weird like phone photos of his like old Polaroids. The other thing is his work is really vibey. 
Can't, I, there's no better word for that. Yeah. You know, uh, from that opening sequence is yeah. a pretty good example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the other distinction from Real Devo is, you know, that was a, uh, that was a period piece. Mm-hmm. And he's now he's in, in doing the new Pope. He's not trapped by the era. Right. Yeah. Just what <laughs> just i'm just thinking about the photos of him as a punk oh yeah his yeah. hair yeah his hair is also very tall. that would make sense as a place where he would pick up a heroin habit doing drug yeah and having drug and using it yeah yeah <laughs> and also i usually i don't know if either of you i really liked that because uh, i had not noticed this the first time we watched the episode uh, in one of the photos, he's like a little teen punk with like his like whatever bad mohawk, and he just is like giving the finger to whoever's taking the camera. It feels yeah. sort of very like prototypical of of that that type of uh, classic, thing. Classic fit. Release the flashback of John Malkovich just playing a teen. At a just superimposes face. Oh, like the love guru. Like in the love guru. Like in the love guru. Which is that the first time we've mentioned it on this podcast? First and last. Well, please. I mean, you, the new Pope is basically a synonym for the love guru. I mean, because it's all just about whole, it's about sacred love. The I mean, love it, he's a guru of the love, love of God. It's about love, you know? Um, and as Gutierrez says, the, the love guru. Yeah. I'm so sorry, everybody. I apologize to Mike Myers um, and everyone else involved in the making of the love guru. Uh, no, but he does, he, I don't know. Is there anything else? Like, I, I have like one other, other thing that I really want to talk about. Uh, with regard to, to Branix. Go for it. Um, so there's like this scene and then, cause they're really, there's this scene where Sophia asks him how he pulls off his sort of like big claim to fame. Oh, right? right. Which is that he, he gets all of these Anglicans to convert. Mm-hmm. And he says that he thinks that religion or that God is poetic and that the way that he gets people to sort of see the appeal of spirituality and of God uh, is by talking about these very prosaic things. He talks about golf. He talks about the weather. He talks about all this other stuff. Uh, and that in sort of talking about these small things that I do think exist, like in contrast to all of the aesthetics that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Like that's like how he gets people to convert. And it's like, I don't know. I, I find that really interesting and sort of like, a weird clash with his whole deal. Well, again, I mean, I think that goes back to the question of how sincere is a conversion if it's made by the rational mind or if it's made out of some desperation in your personal life. And like that to me feels a bit like what the bishop says in dogma, you know, get them while they're young. Right. Yeah. Should we? Should we? Do, let's do a bonus episode where we watch Dogma. Oh my god, that's a good idea. I actually, seen it since that's a film that um, I think it's. Yeah, I actually haven't seen it in a long time either since they used to play it on Comedy, Comedy Central, Central constantly. <laughs> and you know that's a good rainy day, you know, film. Um, but I wonder. I mean, I wonder if it holds up. I kind of think it does. There were some good gags. In that I one. bet. I bet Alec Rickman like still slaps in it. That's right. It was. It also had an amazing cast. Yeah, Alan Rickman and very strange like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck performances. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chris. Chris Rock. 
Okay, but back to Brannix. <laughs> I want to bring this something up before I forget. Because... Oh, Jay and Silent Bob? <laughs> oh, yeah, they were in it. That was very weird. And George um, Carlin. And Alanis Morissette. Yeah, she's got. Speaking uh, of our modern day George, <laughs> George Carlin. <laughs> Does kind of look like him in this. Uh, one of the things that he talks to people about to convert them to Catholicism, uh, he's like, golf, um, fucking football in it but then he's like the way women cross their legs and mm-hmm. like think about the first season or the first scene of this episode yeah it's that and also like not to give too much away but like just keep this in mind for when well we it's keeping in mind for especially for the sharon stone episode when we that's, get to the yeah, sharon that's, stone that's like a known fact that she's yeah in so there's right? a known fact that okay. she's in the show it's a known fact that marilyn manson is in the show if this is how you're finding out i am sorry but also get hyped for the marilyn manson episode it's right very very powerful yeah and yeah i mean i'm sure anyone who knows anything about sharon stone like can see what's coming but like there's something yeah i sorrentino i think has something there it's like very like He's just gotten really into it. He's really into it. He took a figure drawing class. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's a really... But that, that he... I do think there's something interesting theologically in the fact that he finds God, like, in all of these sort of, like, very small, like, facts or, or natural uh, elements of the way that the universe is constructed. And yet he weeps about the inexhaustible imperfection of the world, which actually kind of reminds me of... Um, well, of God's what's his name? It, Gerald Manley Hopkins. Do you remember that guy? poet no No. um he has a a famous poem where uh i forget if he's catholic or not i'm gonna look this up he has a famous poem where basically he's like um hey thanks god for all the whack shit that happens (laughs) it's like uh, unless not exactly like that um but uh yeah he was he was a, a jesuit priest oh and um let me find this uh it's called like glory be to God for dappled thing, or that's like the first line. Um, oh, it's called pied beauty, right? Glory be to God for dappled things for skies of couple color as a brinded cow. And it just goes on like that. So, huh? It's be a good new segment. Yeah. You read Catholic poetry to us. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, he, and I, I don't know, it, there's something, it feels very, like, it feels very intellectually grounded, I think. Like, it feels like he sort of has this, like, very intense, like, commitment to ordinariness, um, in a way that is, like, really fascinating. But I don't believe it, because there's nothing in his life that's ordinary. Yeah. It's just page, it's just marketing, it's patronizing mm-hmm. people. Oh, you know how the proles, like, their arsenal footy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, Bud Light is God. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I don't, like, I think that's true. I also feel like he... Getting in a fist fight at the Tesco is God. <laughs> like, because he does, he does have this, like, interest in, in that type of, like, culture, right? Like, I, I like, he, he evinces and and this this is a thing you know yeah he gets really he really he looks down on that stuff but also i think wants to be a part of it in some ways and you really get the sense of that i think yeah in his like childishness 
uh, that he, he, you know, is like wants to, and sort of has all these experiences that he like should have, but like hasn't really internalized any of them and has like sort of lived this like very like large and, and privileged life. But that also is just like, he feels so isolated yeah, well, I mean, he says he talks to God, which in the universe of the show might be possible. It does. It does happen. This usually most people say they do that for full of shit. Oh man, um, God, what else do we do we want to get to? Is there is there anything else we want to cover that we have missed in the episode? Um, I just want to add that mm-hmm. I just discovered that. Hopkins was gay and also like wrote poetry as his like method of like venting his desires because uh, his, when he joined this Catholic order, they frowned on writing poetry and stuff, but he just wrote really horny poetry because he was like really horny for Christ on the cross and uh, didn't know how to deal with that. So a young Sufjan Stevens. In the Middle Ages, you know, a lot of people who went to monasteries, they were like third, fourth sons. Yeah. Uh, they had nothing to inherit, so uh, you just have to join a monastery. And it was they were basically fraternities. Right. And they weren't like the nerd monks who yeah. wrote illuminated <laughs> manuscripts and copied the Bible by hand. Uh, they would just get drunk and like go around singing body songs mm-hmm. and they wrote a lot of really vulgar poetry some of which remains uh so you know there you go huh so you know the taking the cloth can just be another way of hanging out with your fellas of just, just dudes rocking the boys yeah dudes to rock just guys yeah. being dudes just hanging out. maybe that's the like oh man yeah just like I'm, what do you do what are you doing here i'm trying to hang out with my boys that's what it was for a lot of them Ma- mary just the mo- mary's coming in here being like hey like you guys uh you guys want any pizza rolls no mom god hanging out with the boys that's what it's like they didn't care about any of the you know the, the god aspects or reading the yeah. bible or anything like mm-hmm. that they're just like yeah i don't know this is what i'm doing now that's just it's just what you do after college uh we didn't mention but there's like i feel like there's very little going on with the nuns in this episode we just get that one scene of that one nun whose like mother is sick and She's very upset about. Yes, it. and which is paired with the the our brief check in on uh, one of the refugee boys. Oh right, uh, yeah, because they've expelled the refugees now, and also there's that great scene where um, that's contrasted with all the cardinals like getting all their shit back. That mm, uh, as they undo the papacy of Francis II. Right. Oh, also the episode was uh, bookended by this ISIS tape. Yes. Let's talk yeah. about that. Uh, in the first episode, this ambassador to the Vatican guy, who we see very briefly in this episode, um, hanging out in like a shawarma restaurant with his girlfriend, um, he basically was telling Boyello, like, oh, you have like terrorists at your door, and like there's this refugee problem, and like the Vatican's under siege. And we got that scene in the first episode, too, of just the TV in the middle of a room playing this, like, clip of ISIS. And it feels like, it feels like Sorrentino is just sort of reminding you, like, hey, 
ISIS is going to show up at some point. And yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's contrasted again uh, with the brief glimpses that we get of the Lenny cult, which is still just sort of like waiting outside of his hospital room. They're just room. sleeping on the ground Yes, outside. they're sleeping on the ground. They're all wearing their matching. Speaking of the, the aesthetics of religion and power, they're all wearing their matching Lenny hoodies. Like, matching, and they're just still... They're matching Lenny letter hoodies. Yes. Uh, the the members of this cult all are going to publish some really exciting uh, essays in newsletter form. And it's going to be real fascinating read for a couple of years. Powerful. But yeah, it's... We don't really have much to go on with the ISIS stuff at this point. It's just sort of like in the background. It's just one of these things that is like facing the church from the outside and in what capacity it's kind of unclear. There's a lot of stuff that's unclear in this episode. We don't even know. I mean, we know he's become, he's, he's, yeah, let's not fuck around. Like there's uh, the the image for this podcast is him dressed as the Pope next to Lenny. So like, I want to give one last thing, which is Sorrentino is obviously someone who is, uh, very, very, very well versed in the very scandals and conspiracies of mid twentieth century Italian politics, mm-hmm. and they're not even conspiracies at this point. It's real shit that happened that's yeah. on the record, uh, including the Vatican banking scandal, which was a huge thing that resulted in some assassinations. And obviously, that's one of the precedents of this show. And another one is. The resignation of uh, uh, Cardinal uh, uh, Ratzenberger, uh, Pope, um, mm-hmm. uh, what the hell was his name? Benedict. Pope Benedict, thank you. Uh, and that was a weird thing because, as you pointed out, the last pope to resign did so about 800 years ago. And so that's been grist for a lot of conspiracy theories, which I don't actually know what the alternate um, narrative is. I don't know. Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I've been told that there's some information about that uh, in the recently released Netflix film, The Two Popes. But if we have one rule here on Papal Resurrection... It's that if you watch or talk about the content of the Netflix film, The Two Pubs, in any way, you are uh, banned from the church. Yes. Because fuck that. Yeah. Um, no, but I do, I mean, so one thing I do think is interesting, and I, I, I will need to sort of, like, reread some stuff about this, but uh, apparently Benedict actually is in part the inspiration for Branix, and that the, the really? famous middle way that, that Branix is known for is is loosely potentially loosely based on this book that that Benedict wrote, um, you know, when he was a, a priest called like an early guide to all the title, but sort of like a fundamental like book work of theology. But Rosenberg was a conservative, right? Mm-hmm. I believe so. His whole deal was the church has to be a bulwark against. Uh, you know, cultural liberalism and relativism. Introduction to Christianity, I believe, is the... It's why all the tradcaths love him. Mm. Oh, I uh, I said another name wrong. It's Cardinal Ratzinger. 
not whatever the fuck I said. <laughs> oh, so yeah, we were. I think we, we were, were using Ratzenberger. We were I using said the name. Yeah, so we were using the name, I believe, of the actor John Ratzenberger for the television show John Cheers. <laughs> wait, so we have to. We, we have to. We, we the, the actor John Ratzenberger of the television show Cheers and voice work in the Toy Story franchise <laughs> fame. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I I gotta. I need to. We need to think about Pope John Ratzenberger. Wait, the other who, thing who is, is he, who does he play in in what Toy Story? Oh, um, uh, Mr. Potato Head. I think. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Okay, here's what the story was. Uh, first off, no, he's, he's Ham. Sorry. Um, oh, you're right. Benedict said he was running for health reasons, but that was like eight years ago, and he's still kicking. So, uh, okay, this is from an Atlantic article. The circumstances surrounding Benedict's decision to step down have titillated scholars and journalists alike, especially given the fact that his resignation came not long after the Vataleaks scandal. The release of internal Vatican memos by some accounts revealed how Benedict's efforts to reform the church, like provide transparency on the global sex abuse scandal and the management of the Vatican Bank, uh, that was uh, part of the uh, scandal in Il Divo, was the Vatican Bank, were undercut by internal politics. Some of the talk that Benedict was forced out starts there. In the Italian media, the leak itself was portrayed as proof that a faction of prelates who wanted to discredit Benedict and pressure him to resign was behind the leaks. Huh. Some real Voyello shit, honestly. Yeah, but um, nobody remembers the damn leaks, so... Also, what are you going to do? Indict the Pope? We to impeach him? You're not, Listen, gonna, you're not gonna get you're not welcome, gonna get you're not gonna get twenty Republican senators to remove the Pope. To the Cardinal Mueller report. That's right. We're here talking about scandal. It goes all the way to the top of the Vatican, and this time we've got him. <laughs> Stupid. How will Pope John Ratzenberger wriggle his <laughs> way out? So I guess if you believe in that conspiracy theory, you have to believe that he was a hero, actually, mm-hmm. and he was pushed out by the bad cardinals, he was, yeah. which he was. would also imply that uh, Francis is actually, he's in league with all the bad people because they haven't pushed him out yet. Yeah, yeah. That, it, it, means, it means that Benedict was a Catholic Q. Breaking so many stories here on this podcast. Oh, yeah, for real. I'm so sorry. For, we've 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 gotten off. I'm, I really want to take a second to apologize. I feel like we've really gotten off track from the original mission statement of people pulled to resurrection, formerly known as people bold to popes to curious, formerly known as people pulled to the secret of the pews, formerly known as people pulled to back in the habit. Back in the classic <laughs> was the name of our first episode, actually. So we sort of used that one. We've we've blown through all the jokes already. Now we have to just start investigating the Vatican conspiracy theories. That's all that's left. Yeah. Oh man, Uh, I can't wait for there to be a scene right when he he uh, uh, when Malkovich becomes the Pope, where he he's like, "Great, now show me all the files on on area area LXI." (laughs) Jesus Christ! You know, you know the Vatican like. Has a no, it's LXI. Oh, six. I was oh, no, 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 it's LI. It's just LI 51. That was just yeah. yeah, it's just LI. Areas, the area 61, which is even more I was, secret. Yeah. 51. I was thinking area 69. <laughs> <laughs> L- area LXI. Uh, the Vatican has an astronomy like department or whatever, and um, there is, I think, like some theological debate about what would happen if humanity encountered aliens in the Vatican. Because, like, would 
they be able to convert? Like, would they, how would the church relate with aliens, I think, is an actual real theological question. And the answer that they said that uh, if they're aliens and Christ also died for the aliens. Right. Right. That's like honestly yeah, pretty did, tight. Did Christ actually. die for aliens, I think, is. Uh, yeah, it would be insulting if you're an alien. Why should if, if aliens came here and said, oh, there was an alien guy died alien for you. Christ died for you, yeah. We'd be like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? Shut up. <laughs> I'd be into it. I don't know. I would be kind of like, I would be, I feel like this is how I feel sort of like, I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of supposed to get more, more upset about this. Uh, but I, I feel like my sort of like instinctive reaction when I listen to, to, um, sometimes when I listen to, to Christian people talk about how my soul is saved because Jesus died for the Jews as well. Uh, I'm like, that's nice. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't need to, I don't, I don't think we need to sort of like have a conversation about it. And I don't believe the thing that you believe, but I'm glad that you sort of like go out of your way and your belief system to be like, nah, he's good. Like that seems fine to, at least for me personally, as long as I don't have to deal with it. I, I, everyone can keep praying for me. I, I probably need it. All I'm saying is, if any alien tried to tell me alien Christ died for me, I would say alien Christ died for nothing. There's no alien God. It's all a lie. Read alien Richard Dawkins. <laughs> the new, the new, 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 new atheists. God, alien Richard Dawkins probably sucks. Yeah. They suck in every planet. Yeah. The well, fucking alien Sam here. Uh, now I'm reading about this. Uh-huh. Uh, alien Richard Dawkins. No, Alien Jesus. Or whether Jesus died for aliens. We're getting very... Look, we're we're, getting this, a, is, this is not a Scientology podcast. No, no, no. This isn't... No, this is Catholicism. This is actually Catholicism. I just think it's important that somebody's following all these stories. Yeah. Keeping, you know, <laughs> like somebody's point is, keeping yeah. on top of this stuff. Because, you know, it's like climate change. Like, I'm not going to do it, but somebody should be doing it. It's the kind of thing someone should be doing. Just like climate... This work is of equal importance. To stopping climate crisis, I think, is what we're saying. I think that's a really, really good sort of concluding theological note yeah. for our analysis of this episode. I think the, that'll do it. Does, that seem, does yeah. that seem like... Yeah, I guess we're, we're going to wrap up then. Um, or we can keep, I mean... No, that I just said that, Bunny. I did mean that we should wrap up. Uh, yeah, so, do, do we have any closing thoughts on this episode or about where we think that the show is going? I've closed already. The door's closed. I think there's going to be a new pope. It's a bold bet dollars to donuts that this okay. episode is setting us up for a new pope. If you look carefully at some of the hints in the yeah. episode. <laughs> the, the text that if you, if you really, really squint at the beginning, it looks like it maybe says the new pope. All right, Twitter. Hold up, motherfuckers. We're going to talk about a new pope. Thread. Uh... I'm sorry for doing the thread voice. My favorite Star Wars movie. (laughs) A new Pope. So that'll do it for this episode of Papal Bull Resurrection, the only new Pope podcast. Don't believe the hype about the other ones. They're not real. False gods. Uh, False gods. uh, False idols. Don't don't listen to them. Don't uh, subscribe to them. And um, uh, look out for more episodes of this podcast on this feed and uh, if you're into other stuff other than this particular TV series, we sometimes other things discuss them. Those things also. 
Sometimes we things, talk about things other things. Do. Sting, things do. On this uh, channel, we also have Fanwith, the Fanbyte podcast, which is nominally about video games, but I promise we don't talk about them that much. Uh, we also have uh, our movie podcast, which is called Not uh, Be Nice and Rewatch It or whatever, because that was the Polygon one. Uh, it's in the feed. Just look. You'll find it. Um, and also go to fanbyte.com and, um, you know, if you like this stuff, the stuff we post there is like, we post a lot of similar stuff. We post a lot of similar. Is there been a lot of recent editorial content about, uh, how the Vatican will respond to the existence of aliens? Uh, oddly, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's actually the plot of the new Call of Duty is, a no, that's the plot of Assassin's Creed, I think, actually, because uh, there are aliens and it is about killing the Pope. So, um. Yeah, so uh, Zemmerin, do you want to tell folks where they can find your stuff online? I mean, people know where to find your stuff online. Yeah, yeah. People know. Uh, you can find... But go to Virgil Texas on Twitter. You can go to Virgil Texas on Twitter. Go to virgiltexas.com slash Twitter. You could go to chapotraphouse.com. You could do any of these things. I, I also just want to say quickly, yes, I have been calling the director... Uh, Sorrento this entire time. <laughs> he is Sorrento. Uh, which you, is you, the name you, of the vehicle. We've, we've been and also a cookie. It's also the name of a cookie. <laughs> and uh, if you even think about bringing this up to me. You're blocked. Uh, you're, you're, you're blocked. Blocker. Don't don't tweet you, Brad Virgil about this. Don't tweet at us about it. Oh, that is instant blockerino. Do yeah. not at this. This really, I think, has been a powerful sort of like experience in doing analysis where all of the names are like 80% right because <laughs> I think we've had that experience with like a lot of different names and honestly I think that the world that we've created where the director is a, a cookie and also for some reason like, Cliff is the fucking like it's good I like it a lot uh you know what you're not blocked you're excommunicated Fuck. oh wow that that is basically just blocking for the church soft block yeah God, is, God soft block. That is a soft block. You're thrown out. I mean, uh, and Eric, you're at Eric Thurm. I am, yeah. Twitter.com. And um, you've got a book. I, oh, I do, People yeah. People might not know about that book. Uh, yeah, I wrote a book. It is not about the Pope. It's about board games. Uh, it is out on uh, NYU Press, the avidly read series in collaboration uh, from the LA Review of Books and the NYU Press. But more importantly, by coastal, yeah, by just a sort of like you I get, but it's like a real coastal elite uh, production. But the 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 more importantly, because I, I forgot to talk about this, uh, I have a lot of other sort of like Pope content floating around. If you're interested in hearing some of Paolo Sorrentino's and Jude Law and John Malkovich's thoughts about power, uh, you can read an interview that I did with them in, in Vulture, uh, which I was really terrified of doing because. Uh, I loved the young Pope, and also Jude Law has really tight pants. Okay, I don't you, think you told me about that. About the pants? Yeah. It was a miracle, I would that's, say, how tight they were. Wow. That's a lot to take it in. Was, it was very powerful. That's a lot. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Merritt K, and I'm also, as you know, the features and trending editor of fanbyte.com. So, you know, check us out. And uh, if you like this podcast, please... You know, everyone always just says, go, uh, you know, like and subscribe, go to iTunes, right? And 
I'm going to say that too, because it helps us. It's good. You got to do it. And uh, tell your friends about Papal Bull. Tell the world. Tell your dog. Tell aliens. Tell a baby before it's being baptized. Tell a baby. Baptize a baby in the oral waters of this podcast. I like that a lot, actually. You're born, yeah. You're that's what we've been doing. The podcast. You're no, you're born in sin, or you're born sort of like in a weird, abstract state. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's it. So we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, we're the popes now. We're the popes now. Bye bye. 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 B